Hello and welcome to another episode of the Atlas Podcast. My name is Alex. I'm joined as always by Martin. Hello, Martin. Hello, Alex. How are you doing today? All right. Fantastic. <laughs> uh, yeah, so this week's episode of the podcast, we are looking at carbon capture, um, maybe having a, another look at that, how we could do things differently. We also have a lovely chat with Lucy Knight, big into open data and things. That's going to be very interesting. And finally, we're going to talk about, I've already forgotten, Kafka and Kafka Streams. That's the one for our tech spot. So following on, following on from the kind of data theme and some of the technologies that kind of underpin the, uh, yeah, the ways and means of being able to process that data. And uh, Kafka's one of those cool tools that everybody can use. Absolutely. This feels, uh, as an episode, quite home turf for us because we talk a lot about zero carbon and things like that, and we also work a lot in data. So, yeah, I feel comfort zone has been achieved, perhaps. Well, are you saying over the uh, last few weeks we haven't quite been in with the supercomputers? And <laughs> Maybe. Maybe just a tad outside of our zones. Uh, yeah, so this uh, the news article that we're looking at today is from wired.co.uk, and it's it's titled "We've got carbon capture all wrong." Nice provocative title. We'll put a link to it in the description, um, and it's really about recontextualizing how we view carbon capture. Um, we did do a discussion a few weeks ago on Bill Gates' new book, um, "How to Avoid a Climate Disaster," but I think. From his point of view, it was much more of yeah technological advances we could make. Uh, and he did talk about carbon capture in some of the earlier chapters, but it's more about at source and from the air carbon capture technologies, whereas this article is looking at perhaps some of the natural um, processes that take place around the world anyway that do remove a huge amount of carbon from the atmosphere, but perhaps rather than... Um, yeah, trying to affect them too much. We just guide them in the right way. We help them along. Um, so, yeah, yeah, what do you think? Yeah, it's a different use of technology, really, because um, it's really about how technology can help us monitor the the natural processes. Um, it does, like I said, it does touch on some of those carbon capture technologies but this is predominantly about how do we how do we use technology to analyze the information that we have from satellites and that type of thing so i did find the article title yes it, it drew me in so i i went and read it but then when i read the article is actually not so much about where we got it wrong it's about what we're doing about it which i found mm. quite fascinating so obviously someone's tweaked the headline to make it more uh, to hook people in um yeah they've done what a headline should do which is make yeah. you click on it and uh, fair enough uh, but it's yeah. a great article and yeah it's uh it's i think it's important to remember because obviously all of these things that we do in terms of aiming for a zero carbon future are about saving the planet we live on and i think as has been mentioned it's the planet will be fine without us but it's saving a planet that we can continue to grow in um, but so much carbon is captured by things like trees, obviously, but also, as the article points out, a lot of it is ocean-borne, this mm. carbon capture, um, from, yeah, seagrasses to algaes to kelp to things like that. Um, they capture a huge amount of carbon. Yeah, and that's what it kind of goes on about the twin challenges. It goes on about the different ways that, that carbon dioxide is there. So it's from, from emission sources, which is kind of what you're referring to when we traditionally call talk about carbon capture, mm. um, uh, um, and from the atmosphere itself, if you like, which is uh, really those natural processes, because the emission sources predominantly um, are man-made ones. When we talk about technology, whether that's man-made through agriculture um, or man-made through some of the the steel processes, like we talked about last time, or or um, uh, cement mm. um, and what i found fascinating about this was uh that it, it goes on about that that what they call the drawdown process the natural processes where where carbon is captured 
um, on land and on in sea. And one of the, I don't know if I've talked about it before, because sometimes I forget, one phrase I, I heard once by a scientist was, people assume trees grow out of the ground. They actually grow out of the air. Mm. Um, and that made you think about that kind of concept that actually trees are predominantly carbon. Yeah. Um, and therefore, where does the carbon come from? Well, it comes from the comes from the air and the um, and the processes that are happening in the leaves um, and whether those leaves are underground um, or, or as you said in the kelp forests or um, in trees it is really uh, drawing down from the carbon but what they yeah. talked about is the more carbon goes into the atmosphere you would have thought this would be uh, a self-correcting process because mm. plants love carbon give them carbon dioxide and they'll soak up as much carbon dioxide as possible. Yeah. And then they call it this kind of carbon dioxide fertilization approach. Um, but as with everything, things adapt to the levels. And therefore, you can't assume that just because the, uh, the plants start guzzling carbon dioxide that they don't adapt to that as well. So, mm. you know, there, there are many complicated processes that are highlights um, in this and from a scientific point of view, um, you kind of, if you look at a satellite image, you kind of can look at where the destruction of rainforests are or where things are being grown and the different approaches. And you can look at that, but you can't actually get a very detailed view of how tall a tree is, for example. Yeah, yeah I think <laughs> they mentioned that, you know, you can see green, obviously, forest grasslands. Mm -hmm. You can differentiate between a grassland and a desert and a jungle but then when you come to those forested areas it's Im almost impossible to tell whether a tree is you know two years old and a meter high or a hundred years old and a hundred meters high yeah and that's all the difference isn't it so scales of magnitude out and what we're trying to do with the technology, and they talk about the global ecosystem dynamic investigation um, and the different technology, including satellite technology um, uh, and, and using light. Uh, they talk about using lasers from um, international space stations to measure the heights of objects and all this type of thing. I'm sure relativity and all this type of thing could need to come into it to correct those type of things. Mm -hmm. um, and they're really looking to looking at how we can use that technology to get a far better idea of how much carbon is captured by various different um, uh, earth processes, really. Mm. Um, and you can also say that there was some further down the article, it talks about the uh, agriculture and the use of plowing and tilling and things like that, and the way that the plowing process itself releases huge amounts of carbon from the soil mm. uh, which always led me to the discussion that i saw once where um, trees in cities are far more effective at capturing carbon um, because they don't allow it to get released so they also talk about that it's fine capturing it but you've also got to be able to store it and in a in a city that's kind of what trees do they store it underground because it can't be released out of the soil because the, the soil's capped by concrete so yeah. no way are we suggesting doing that <laughs> in the countryside but it kind of gives you that idea of great we can capture it but how do we store it um mm because that also needs to be considered, or how do we prevent it being released through those mechanisms um, as well? And once again, technology is a great way of being able to measure those kind of things. So, um, and once we've got that kind of evidence-based approach for doing it, then how do we make sure we standardize that across the globe? And I think that's where the title comes into about saying, we got car carbon capture all wrong, is because we haven't really looked at how we can take the best practices and and globalize those best practices so you know some countries like canada have had this approach for a long time with no till methods mm. um, you know and this has gone from five percent they're saying here in 1991 to nearly 50 percent in by 2006 um so yeah they cover lots of ground here including the youth the uh, the use of mango forests um, and then how well and how 
good they are at capturing it because they they use um, a lot of sea grass meadows and things like that within those tidal marshes and the destruction of that could have a bigger impact because mm. it's not just about the trees it's about the ecosystem that also um, captures that within it really yeah yeah they've they got some interesting case studies throughout this document it's quite it's a it's a relatively long read but um uh, it really does a good job of deep diving into those aspects it's fascinating yeah and a lot of a lot of what grabs me as well is um solutions that i perhaps wouldn't have thought about that it's nice that people are thinking about so there's ideas like agroforestry so mm. including agriculture with forestry mm. because i think actually going back to that bill gates book one of the interesting i forget the exact numbers but carbon production when it's at the source is about 10 times more concentrated than it is in you know once it's released into the atmosphere mm. so obviously if agriculture is going to be producing a lot of carbon having a means of carbon capture for instance forestry uh, woven into that means at source you are capturing more carbon than you would otherwise if you just planted you know huge forests elsewhere far away from where carbon is being produced so yeah it's like you say it's, there's a lot in here lots of interesting new ways of thinking about things um that, yeah perhaps the perhaps the title didn't 100 percent capture but it's uh yeah, it certainly got me reading. So I just want to touch before we dive off the subject on the on the technological side of carbon capture, because I think that's also interesting because not capture, but storage. Because mm. um, storage they're talking about here, almost replicating coal, but coal in reverse. So how do once you've captured that carbon, you can actually then uh, have some kind of mechanical process, if you like, or technological process that actually turns that um, carbon into a coal-like material that you can actually almost like bury in the ground mm. um, and um, yeah it, it's something I actually I'm not investing because invest the wrong word but I actually pay into a business called Climb, uh, Climbworks which is one of the companies they quote here where you can pay them to offset your carbon for you so you give them so much money a month they use that to capture the carbon and in this particular case they they are they are storing that carbon um back into the ground in a petrified manner really um not too dissimilar to coal so that kind of concept is is fantastic the the downside to that is the the scale of it and the cost of it so they're looking at here you know imagine the extraction of coal costs so much money but the making of coal and injecting it back into a storage they're talking about being six hundred dollars per ton um which as a commercial entity's one challenge but as 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 a, a philanthropic um approach like you know you can pay those companies to offset your carbon and they'll bury it for you um mm -hmm. there are these businesses out there that you can um give them a bit of money a month and they will do you feel like you're doing your bit um mm. so yeah some in they also go into that kind of uh, concepts and how to use co2 because co2 is also very useful yeah and can be used in the manufacturing of concrete for example so another way of storing co2 is to use it within those kind of um, industrial processes that we use today mm. lots to think about mm. And probably more than I can grasp <laughs> in, a, in a 13 minute period. But it's, yeah, it is fascinating stuff. And I, that last one you were talking about, so yeah, that burying of recarbonized coal really is, I mean, it's sort of a millions of years done in reverse. Because mm. the planet is so good at capturing, I mean, before we came along and started doing fun stuff with concrete, um, the planet was so good at just having that natural cycle of pull it out of the atmosphere, plant dies, goes down, compressed, turned into coal or oil or something like that. Um, so yeah, we're just we're just winding the clock back. Yeah, yeah, but we're having to look at um, yeah different ways of of managing that. So great article goes into it in really good depth and um, looks at all of the uh, different. Uh, Pros well different um sides of the argument really um and all very valid i think 
Certainly. Uh, as we said, we'll put a link to it in the description. Well worth a read. Um, but for the time being, I think we should have a chat with Lucy Knight. Let's start talking about data. And so for this interview portion of the Atlas podcast, we are joined by Lucy Knight, co-founder and data lead at the Data Place, also very involved with uh, ODI, the Open Data Institute. Thank you for joining us, Lucy. Hello, thank you for having me. Fantastic. So yeah, if you'd like to give us a bit of your background, how you became uh, interested in data, I guess. Okay. Uh, how far back do you want to go? I mean, uh, my background is actually, I live in a small seaside town and the, mm -hmm. uh, the big employer when I was growing up was the electronics factory up the road. So it was kind of a given that either you went into chambermaiding or you went to work at the factory. That's okay. pretty much it. Um, and I looked into going to work at the factory as a young teenager, found out that they weren't offering apprenticeships or any kind of meaningful um, um, advancement, career advancement for youngsters. Um, and promptly had a teenage rebellion sulk, turned my back on that and went to college and became an art student instead. So Good stuff. Go. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but there's no escaping the pull of the largest employer in the area. Um, they paid the best wages. So eventually when I, um, when I started my family, uh, and found that actually we needed two incomes to, because it was right at the height of the, the housing boom, everything was hideously expensive, we needed two jobs. So I did end up working at the factory, but I, I did this with this, I'd already had this background. My dad had worked at the factory, my brother had gone into electronics. Um, and so I was grounded in that right from very early age. Not formative memories, my dad sitting at the dining room table, soldering up boards to go back into a TV that he was fixing up for a, a, a friend from work. So like, you know, the the smell of the solder and the flux and everything. That's what I remember from when I was tiny. So it was kind of inevitable. And I worked at the factory for a good few years um, and became a technician in the end and just found that there's an awful lot of data coming in and out of a production line, especially if you're working in, in kind of micro opto electronics. There's a lot of data being moved around and being handled. So that's where I kind of got my grounding in, in handling, managing data and making it, turning it into useful things. Um, it wasn't an abstract thing for us. It was, we have to understand what's happening on the production line. We have to understand why machine A is turning out more mistakes than machine B. We have to understand why the readings on this particular device are askew. So it was a very pragmatic grounding. And then after that, I uh, took a, a career break to, to raise you know, more children and, and took a little time off to raise them and then ended up working in uh, my local authority because I needed somebody who could handle spreadsheets. Um, so then nearly two decades then in local government and a brief stint in the civil service just taught me more and more and more that if you're going to have data, and let's face it, who doesn't these days, Firstly, it has to be usable. Secondly, it has to be useful. I mean, it has to be a reason for it and you have to look after it and you have to curate it and maintain it. And then you have to turn into things that other people have are going to get some value from. So always this very pragmatic kind of view of it. But also having been an art student, I've got that design eye as well that says, how do I make this something that people are going to understand when they look at it? How am I going to make this into something that will make sense? Um, and then from there, uh, so I managed to persuade my then friend and colleague and now business partner, Martin, to join me on a little adventure and go up to London to join an accelerator program. We thought that we could do better stuff with data in government. And this accelerator um, offered the opportunity to sort of take a few, day, a few months out of our day jobs and try to build something that would do just that. Um, and whilst we were there, we heard about the Open Data Institute, uh, made some friends there and realized that when we were talking about more and better data available to more people, what we were talking about was open data. Um, and, and the rest is history. You know, we've just been involved in that scene ever since. We believe that there should be more and better data. There should be more and better standards. But there should also be equity of access to that information, to the power that that information provides. So... Excellent. That's a that's a very thorough, <laughs> very thorough. There's a couple of things I wanted to pick up on there. What one is um, 
the presentation of data there was there was recently a i was listening to a podcast about florence nightingale and how she used data um i'm sure it's probably something you're fully aware of but yeah it wasn't just the data she was using it was how she was using that and representing that information almost for a political uh not political agenda in that way but just to present something to those in politics that they might understand and some of the diagrams she came up with were, you know, really artistic in the way they were presenting that information, just so people could capture that in one go. Um, and yeah, so that blending of that artistic side and and the data side, people often see them as two separate worlds, but obviously you, you're combining the two with your experience. Uh, how do you find that? I mean, yeah, it's very much so. So, I mean, we describe it as the geek wonk interface. Um, so you're, you're, you're treading that fine line. I, I take no credit for that phrase. Um, I, I heard someone else give a talk on it and I immediately stole it with her, her kind permission. <laughs> but it is, it's that line where you are taking the technical and making it understandable for the policy side and you are taking the policy side needs back to the technical and saying, is this feasible? Can this be done? So it's very much, it's a translation job. I mean, mm. my, my Twitter handle, um, Jargon Article, is, is based on um, the jargonaut being that person who does that translation. I don't need to understand every possible single aspect of the technical perfectly. I just need to understand why it needs to be the way it needs to be so I can go back and talk to the policy side and bring that back to them and help them understand what the limitations are and then go back again to the technical and understand the policy enough to, to say, well, it needs to do this, it needs to output this, it needs to look like this, otherwise it's not usable for them. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's very much a translation job. The interesting, you mentioned uh, Florence Nightingale diagrams. I mean, they are a, a perfect example of, of, of the art of trying to get money out of the government, basically, <laughs> to get the thing done that you know needs to be done, but you need to convince somebody. Mm. But what's really, really interesting, so that's the time that we were at the Accelerator, there was a display on, uh, I think, the British, uh, uh, the library, to, uh, of data visualization through the ages. And I was just beside myself, absolute visualization nerd heaven going from exhibit to exhibit and looking at all these wonderful things. But what I observed was other people were coming around and possibly coming at it from a more, um, from an interested layperson or a more artistic point of view. And would frequently they'd stop and they'd look at some amazing visualization and the Nightingale ones were included. And then I kept hearing over and over again, people saying, what's this then? What am I looking at? What's going on? And it just struck me that it, it was possible to make these things too beautiful, too complex to the point where they actually weren't useful anymore. So that's mm. another fine line that you need to be quite careful with. And this is the, was a big realization for myself and for Martin was when we said, well, if we're going to make something and we hope it's going to be useful to say um, local authority elected members, these people are, are smart and they're you know, um, devoted and they're, and they're passionate about what they do. And they're not stupid by any means, even if they're not like you know, um, digital natives. They need to be fed that information in a way that they can act on and make use of as quickly as possible. They do not need to be looking at charts and charts and charts in a meeting saying, what's this and what am I looking at? So mm. that was that was a bit of a formative moment for both of us thinking, right, if we're going to do this, we've got to, we've got to make sure that what we do is accessible and understandable. Yeah, and, and that consolidating or concentrating of those ideas, a lot of people, okay, taking it to the example of, PowerPoint presentation or something like that, trying to con concentrate an idea into one slide, which people are always kind of driving towards, aren't they? You haven't got much time with these people. They're important people. You've got to be able to present it to them in a way. And can you do it on one or, or two slides or something like that? And and trying to consolidate that information, in, which are complex ideas, takes hell of a lot of thinking, doesn't it? <laughs> Uh, it, yeah, no, it absolutely does. I mean, humans are very, very visual creatures. Um, mm. you know, absent sort of the usual visual impairments, obviously, um, play a part. But as a general rule, if we can see a picture, we're shown a picture, we will remember the picture. Uh, and we will remember the narrative that went with the picture. We won't remember a, a table full of numbers mm. as much, which is where um, the, the simple images, the simple frameworks and ways of describing things win out over and over again. You know, your simplest charts, um, your basic kind of flow diagrams, mind maps, two by two matrices, you see them all the time because they work. 
you know mm. pie charts anyone who knows me i can't let this opportunity pass without saying pie charts are evil um no pie charts i couldn't agree pie more pie. all right there you go. <laughs> but you're yeah, right I... then yeah it's it's we are certainly we respond well to visual stimulation and i think you touched on it there as well the storytelling that goes with it we like to connect or we connect best i think when there is a narrative behind any idea yeah yeah but, no absolutely yeah i think the power of the narrative is taking over politics as well but it's um you know it's all a part of the storytelling associated to it it um, can be used for good and evil for sure <laughs> I, I didn't suggest one way or the other alex <laughs> <laughs> um, it's always been that way though is being yeah. able to capture somebody's imagination and convince them that your idea is the right idea or your you know your cause is the one they should support it's always been politics but also relationships you know it's basic human need is to connect and to have other people understand you and and validate and approve and support what you do it's just humans being human yeah and I, slightly off subject actually but i did want to return to uh, you know some of the things that you, i mean you mentioned about your, your history but during that time you also did a an ou degree which i also did during because i was you know working away and what university wasn't something i was even aware of or or perceived that you could go into um and therefore when the timing was right i thought okay what's this thing and i joined did the open university and spent you know seven eight years working through those modules which sounds like something you did but you did it in mathematics so that's once again it's quite a a data heavy aspect to somebody who really likes the artistic what what, what brought you into that maths in particular okay well the uh, the factory where i was working had uh, really good progression tracks for people who wanted to become technicians and then engineers um and they offered a really nice kind of day release course at the local technical college um, which is brilliant. And if you completed that, then the, the, the word was that they would look favorably on funding you to do a follow-up degree, which was brilliant. So um, I went to them and asked them about that. And it turned out that it was only one very specific degree that they would fund. It was like, well, my favorite, I mean, I already knew all the electronic stuff because of my background, because of my family. Um, I already knew that. I did it at school. You know, it was, it was thoroughly ingrained. Um, I said, actually, my favorite bit of all of this was actually the maths. And I'm think, quite thinking I'm I might like to do a maths degree. And they said, well, sorry, we won't fund that. So I went to the OU and did it myself. Um, yeah. As you'd as you another, another teenage soul called up by that time, I was sort of mid-20s, but I never really lost that um, anti-authority streak, I'm afraid. <laughs> um, and yeah, and it just I just looked at the, the offerings and thought, well, knowing that I've got quite a butterfly mind um, and I hate taking orders, my best bet is to construct a degree out of whichever course looks like the most fun or the most interesting or the most useful next. So I started with pure maths because I figured it wouldn't hurt if I was enjoying the maths. If I could do the pure maths module, then that would be good. And then after that, I did applied maths because it seemed like a logical progression. And then I, I just kept each year picking the modules that looked like they would be the most useful, the most fun. So I ended up, it was pure maths, applied maths. I think there was uh, statistics uh, and there was relational databases um and another one which i forget now um but also at the same time because i wanted to do as many points per year as i possibly could to get it done i also ended up doing uh classical latin classical greek um as as like the uh, the fluff around the edges because i'd always wished i'd been able to study them at school and i couldn't so i thought well, those would be fun so i like languages too don't ask me to translate anything because i have forgotten pretty much all of it but but yeah, it just it, I call it my Franken degree. It's stitched together out of all the things I thought would be cool and interesting. And, and every single one of those modules has helped me somewhere. So I must have made some good choices along the line. Yeah, and that, that is the beauty of the Open University degree. It is just picking modules, isn't it, ultimately? <laughs> and um, it has some kind of bearing on what you end up with, whether it's maths or computer science or anything like that. But it's yeah. just a collection of modules you you're far more aware yeah. of the point schemes behind them than anything else, really. But yeah, yeah. So. I'll admit I was quite surprised when I actually got the letter saying I'd earned enough points in my degree because you know I thought I had another year or so to go and I was just yeah. playing through it. So that was a lovely surprise. Like, yeah, oh, I, I, I had something very similar, and then suddenly it's like, oh, you've got the uh, what was it the honours degree? It's like, oh, I didn't even know I'd done enough points for that. Nice. <laughs> it's like, okay, fine, I have that. Yeah, you'll take it. Yeah. <laughs> <All right. laughs> 
Um, yeah, so going from open university to open data institute, okay. I guess, which is a really clunky uh, segue. But um, a um, great segue. Thank you, thank you, Alex. Um, so yeah, how so from being involved with that, obviously. Um, one of the reasons you know I reached out was because I've been to a few of the conferences around Open Data Institute and things like that. I was really kind of attracted by some of the concepts around it. And we we spoke to Gavin previously as well, who was you know one of the people there at the forefront of it. What what do you take from that uh, Open Data Institute? What do you what do you get out of it personally, and how do you see it progressing in the future? Um, well, I think for me, the Open Data Institute was um, and is, uh, is basically is constantly thinking about how this is going to work, constantly thinking about, you know, um, some of the big abstract strategic questions about how open data fits into our lives and into government and into citizenship. Uh, but also the the detail is, you know, in pragmatic terms, how does your average Joe actually get their hands on open data and make something with it or, or generate and publish open data and what tools uh, and knowledge could be put out there that, that will help people. So this is the beginning of, of, of our relationship at the Data Place with the Open Data Institute. So say Martin and I were in London, saw that there was a, the, the ODI Fridays you know, lunchtime lecture mm-hmm. uh, and decided to try and get to one. And once we'd had you know, some conversations, um, we invited... ODI to come down and train us, where we were then working at Devon County Council, the both of us, um, to come and deliver uh, one of the quite intense open data in practice training courses to us and a bunch of colleagues. Um, And by the end of, well, no, by lunchtime on day two, we'd published some open data sets um, and never looked back. That whilst we were, you know, the trainer was with us for three days, um, and he was talking about how ODI was thinking about setting up nodes. So not, not exactly a franchise operation, but kind of um, organizations in different parts of the country and around the world where they would kind of amplify and, and broadcast you know, ODI's messages. And yeah, so the support, you know, we set up ODI Devon and the support we got from the ODI for that was fantastic. Um, they also... Um, indicated that they would like to have more people who are qualified to deliver their training. So um, ended up doing that, becoming an ODI registered trainer. So it's it's been, it's a good few years now. What are we now? 2021, six, seven years, I suppose, mm-hmm. that we've we've kind of known them, been, you know, worked with them. Um, I've been, a, you know, I've done contracts with the ODI, been a consultant with them, been a trainer for them. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I mean, what, what else can I say? Fantastic institution. Um, very good friends. Uh, I'm working with them at the moment um, as a trainer uh, on a short-term contract. And um, it's just it is brilliant. And they are the people I would turn to. You know, if you had a question about how something might work or about what had been done in the past or about, you know, what the current thinking is around uh, particular techniques and mechanisms that people I turn to. Excellent, excellent. And so you, you mentioned your you, the date the data place, which is kind of an, another one of the um, aspects that you're involved with. So yeah. how does that how does that differ from what you're doing with the ODI, or is that is the kind of your commercial aspect of you know keeping your you you in in um, in the way that you like to live and things like that? So how, what yeah, what's the data place for you? So the database is, um, so we're a, a collective, I, I suppose. So it's myself, Martin, that I've already mentioned, um, and two other directors, Simon, Sabrina. Um, and we are basically, we are people who realize that we like working with each other more than we liked working for anybody else. Um, and so we decided that there were projects that we wanted to do, things we wanted to build. And it was a bit of a side venture whilst we all had proper grown-up jobs to focus on. Um but it's rapidly become more because we have just discovered that because we have this very, it's very eclectic. I mean, if you thought I was random, I mean, you put me in a room with the others. So we have, you know, Simon, who is um, who is a service design expert, basically, and, and designer um, and, and kind of visual creator. You have Martin, who's, who's got decades history as an enterprise architect and, and sysadmin. So he's, he's a technical master, but he's also got business qualifications. And you have Sabrina, who is, is the most wonderful um, sort of community building, um, networking person. She keeps us 
focused on sort of reaching out and forming relationships and and um, and working out what it is people actually want from what we make. Um, given the chance, we would all be full time salaried employees of the data place, but it is a startup still, and it can't quite support that. But um, we are still, you know, we're working together today to join you today. I had to clear my uh, electronics workbench and put aside um, several Raspberry Pis and a couple of cameras and um, some breadboard prototypes that were in the way. Um, so this is where we explore the stuff that we think isn't being built yet and, and is needed, whether that's electronics or, or handling data or um, um, user research or personas or whatever is where we we think we can do this well I'm not saying better than everybody else ever anywhere but we think we know what we're doing so that's what we work on and the people that we work with um, we find they come and find us or we come and find them and they're people who we ha share that ethos this is about making this available and useful to more people and to balancing out and kind of the, the the power structures so that everyone's got that access to to what they need fantastic so what have you got what's coming up down the road what's exciting in the future for you um probably most exciting thing is at the moment we're working with um some very talented young people uh including so we've got data scientists and we've got um a, a young person who's joined the organization who's who's kind of um helping me with all of the data stuff i simply don't have time to do so what's very exciting for me is is helping to develop some young people who are sort of in their early careers and show them that you know this is another way that they can work they don't just have to go join a big corporation straight out of university um, but also some of the stuff we're doing is basically around environmental improvements so we're looking at sensors and um, um, image analysis and video analysis for working out you know, things about the behavior of bees for example or you know healthier streets so the the potential impact of that work is just massive if we can get this mm. right with our prototyping so we're very very excited about that but also looking at how to efficiently map and query networks of people who could work together if they knew that each other existed so mm. some kind of community mapping but again in a way that brings it to people who aren't technical so you can have yeah. very very technical data sets driving the back end of something but it's not that accessible to everybody. So actually, how do we make that make sense for people? How do we make that something that somebody can go, who do I know who works in this field and is also based in Bodmin, you know? So that's that's just three of the things we've got going on. There are more. But, you know, you see, we, we bounce around a lot between projects as well. Uh, good. It's exciting stuff. Uh, I think we might be bumping up against our time. But as always, there's so many things there I think that we could do an entire episode on. So we'll have to get you back round two at some point of course we delighted fantastic oh well, yeah thank you so much for joining us lucy and uh we will we'll speak to you next time all right fabulous thanks very much and so for this tech spot portion of the atlas podcast we're joined by our first returning guest neil welcome back to the podcast hi how you doing very well. How are you doing? Uh, good, thank you. Or, or, Excellent. As we call him, Mr. Data, which no Mr. Data. <laughs> yeah. And we have a, a very data led tech spot. We're going to be talking about Kafka and Kafka streams. Um, so, yeah, perhaps you could give us a, a bit of an overview to begin. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah, so Kafka is a stream processing platform. Uh, it implements uh, PubSub, and it's designed with high throughput and real-time applications in mind. Um, basically, the pattern is producers push data onto a, a Kafka topic. You might have several different ones for various different purposes. Those topics are then partitioned by a message key and then replicated across multiple servers <coughs> for resilience. And then other applications basically consume the data off those topics. Um, the content within those messages is up to the, up to the applications and the user but generally it's just a, a key and a, and a body. And yeah, it's quite a mature project. So started at LinkedIn and was open source way back in 2011. So it's very mature now. Um, and there's quite a big ecosystem built around it. So it means you can start using it and integrating it with your application quite quite easily and, and get up and, up and running. 
and be uh, confident that you've yeah got quite a resilient system quite quickly basically and uh, and you you touched on a couple of things there when you talk about um things like topics so topics in layman terms is very much a, a cue or a buffer of information isn't it if you it is yeah yeah if you describe a little bit about why kafka is i wouldn't say unique but what it's kind of you know messaging protocol well not protocol messaging queuing mechanism and how you can manipulate that messaging queue i think yeah so yeah topics essentially it's kind of their subject or their their queue it's their their terminology for that um where it works differently to a more kind of standard kind of message broker so rabbit mq for example would be a, another popular message broker and um, that works with queues this is it's essentially like a, a log so it's basically a commit log that gets distributed across the the servers um so whereas a normal message broker you would be a message get pushed onto the queue something would then consume it and that, that message is then gone basically you've you've processed it it's you know, the message broker doesn't know anything about it anymore then with kafka it runs on this kind of rolling log so you're basically committing all of the the messages that come in to this log it just keeps growing and growing and the the consumers basically have a position within that log so they might start at the 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 first message that comes in process that particular message and then get bumped along to the next message within it and they're just kind of maintaining their position within that log so the older data doesn't, if you set the retention high enough, never gets deleted. So in theory, you could then spin up another application, another kind of service that's going to consume from that topic and get it to play through every message you've ever received if you wanted to. Um, you don't have to basically just start with the the latest. Um, so you can then obviously gives you a bit of extra stuff around. Say for some reason you want to, you know, just go back one day in time to reprocess something because some some disasters happened and um, you can do that basically whereas a normal message broker you know you've processed it it's it's gone it's kind of the work is done and and passed on so it's yeah, all so based it's, around this log so a lot of it's playing with those pointers in a way isn't it as well and uh, looking at how you can manipulate that information where you want to get the information from and that's all predominantly time series um, data, um isn't it, really, yeah i mean it's it's built with yeah like I said, high throughput and it's built for real time applications. But the, and sorry, each, each thing, yeah, is timestamp, but the content within those messages could be be anything. So um, we're doing things where we're going to have um, data for a particular machine that says, oh, you know, it's got these particular rules to follow, um, these particular settings. And it will take those those pieces of data as well. So they might come in on one particular topic, and then you might have your real time data from the sensors on a different topic. And then if we get into like Kafka trees, we can then talk about how those two things can be yeah joined together, and you can produce new data onto more topics from that once you process them. So yeah, primarily time series, um, real time data is the the thing, but you can also yeah plug any kind of data into it. Essentially, the payload is it doesn't it doesn't really understand what's within the payload, doesn't care. It's kind of out of its scope. And when we talk about high throughput, what kind of what kind of um, times are we talking about? What's the um, low latency timing are we talking about? Yeah, I mean it's it's fairly low latency. Um, it's not the lowest latency, but what you're doing is you're trading some of that for um, the ability to scale up to yeah potentially millions of messages per second. Um, so. You could basically scale it if you've got enough money to uh, spin up enough servers. You could, um, yeah, you could spin it up to um, yeah ridiculous levels. Um, so it's a payoff between that speed, which is still in the milliseconds. Isn't it's it? still in you the know? yeah. We're still talking like a tiny distance. There'll be there'll be some particularly specialized ones that might yeah have a slightly lower latency, but you're trading other things away for that. Whereas with this, you get in yeah all this resilience, all this ecosystem around it. So yeah, it's basically pick your poison. But we'd yeah, like you say, we're talk, talking really, really low kind of latencies there. Um but yeah, if you've got if you've got plenty of um yeah, spends to um to do, you can um yeah, scale it up to um, ridiculous levels. And one of the things is um the more you scale it, typically the cost per message goes down. So it's not one where you're gonna hit a hit a point where it gets more and more expensive to um to scale it out. So yeah, the bigger your cluster, the 
the more cost effective it will become. And when we talk about costs, we're really talking about the compute costs there, aren't we? Not the uh, licensing cost or something like this. Yeah, I mean, there's there's two. You could um, the the company behind it is uh, called Confluent, so you could use their their platform, um, and they they would handle the managing of yeah all of those servers and and everything along with it. So obviously that would yeah come with a cost. So obviously scaling that with them will obviously be more expensive or because it is open source you can yeah deploy it in whatever way you see fit wherever um using the open source version so yeah with that you're just paying for your compute and storage costs so i think i mentioned about the the topics um and like the how long you could keep the data for so typically the default would be seven days so you'd have a seven day history of everything that ever went into those um topics but there's been, yeah, bits of talk about potentially using Kafka as a, a database. I don't think anyone's fully convinced of that yet. But you could um, keep those data messages forever, basically, because they're written to disk. You could just, as long as you keep expanding your storage, you could save every message you've ever, ever received and, yeah, use it as a database. <laughs> and that's that, that's that combination of um, uh, thinking of events in a way because there's lots of events that occur and we don't always um, consider events to be time series but this is kind of that that approach isn't it it's not like you're looking for a regular pulse every second this is going to happen these are just events that are flowing in that you're time stamping and those events can be all kinds of things they can be everything from um, uh, orders starting or um, uh, escalations happening or whatever it is they can all be then added into these different exactly. different topic queues so there's no limitation to the like you said the messaging within them um but it's very much a meant event mentality that you have to think about yeah exactly yeah it's just something happened here's an event for it send it to, to kafka it's logged in your history then it goes through your pipeline could be processed alongside everything else so i think you mentioned yeah processes there so you could have a a process that starts that starts a, a batch of something creates like a, a serial number um some sort of label um and then you could yeah receive that event that could then with um kafka streams so kafka streams is a it's a, a client library for for kafka that's basically focused on um providing you with a like an api to um transform the data as it comes in so you can take various topics you can join them filter them um, aggregate them etc and what you could do with that is you could have yeah this um yeah process topic that says yeah some batches started that would receive one kind of data you could have your real-time data from your sensors coming in on a different topic and then with kafka streams you could basically join that data together and enrich the the sensor data as it's coming in with specific information about the machines that have been running at the same time as it, who who started the process, um, yeah, batch numbers, et cetera. So you can enrich that data by, yeah, combining multiple topics together before you hit your next stage of processing. Yeah, and giving it that context, because mm. one thing we were discussing on one of them is, especially around open, open so data sources, um, they're often not of a very high quality and, um, those types of things, and also with Kafka Streams, you can you can try and improve the quality of your data data at source as well, can't you? By filtering out things that you know are anomalies from the yeah, make. exactly, yeah. So you could apply you could apply your own business logic at that point. So once you've picked out your particular topics that you're going to be working on, um, you can then apply filters within that filter. You could say, yeah, based on these particular conditions, I don't want to, yeah, I don't want to save that data because I know it's yeah junk or you want to yeah apply an extra more context to it or or clean that data up as well and that can all happen within this yeah kafka streams job um and with that you don't need to install any any extra infrastructure so you can it you can just treat it as a as a microservice essentially so you can just package that up deploy it as you would do any of the other microservices point it at the, the kafka brokers that it's going to be working with um, and then it will yeah interact with Kafka. If there's any intermediate queues or any sort of checkpointing, then it can do that within Kafka 
directly. So it's it's quite an easy thing to to add on to to Kafka. And I think if you're using that, you might is is you know it's a good choice to to consider using Kafka That's streams as well. And and one of you touched on one of Alex's favourite subject there, um, which was the microservices. You love them, don't you, Alex? I love a microservice for yeah. sure. Yeah, we got another one now. We got a Kafka yeah. microservices. Fantastic. And, and as we know, Alex, don't we? You can push microservices to the edge, really, can't you? I didn't know that, but I do now, um, and I'm sure I won't know that again tomorrow. But we'll come back around. <laughs> yeah. Well, that 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 does tie into this. So. Um, so the Kafka stream services that yeah you create. So if you deploy Kafka to the edge as well, you could then choose to deploy some of these Kafka streams yeah services to the edge as well. So you can choose whether you're going to do some of that processing on the edge or um, in the cloud once you've you've sent the data up. So you can kind of mix and match where you're going to do your data processing then. Fascinating. And I t looking at the website for Kafka. It does seem like it's a massively adopted system. So obviously, people, it has wide application across industries, doesn't it? It does, yeah. So um, yeah, like I said, it started at LinkedIn. They open sourced it, and then yeah, basically loads of people are using it. So Twitter's using it for stuff. Um, I spotted Rabobank using it as well. Um, mm. Some of their financial stuff. Um, yeah, loads of loads of people. It's a it's a massive project. It's one of those funny things that probably proves out necessity as the mother of invention because, yeah, you make this thing for yourself and then it turns out everybody could make use of it. Yeah, exactly. And that's the kind of open source approach, isn't it? You kind of go here, you go, we can accelerate it so far, but moving into the open source community, um, it can accelerate its development far quicker because you've got more, more and more people using it. And if those people get something from it, great. And if they feed back just a small portion of that it back into the community, then the um, product continues to grow and accelerate its growth. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's got, um, yeah, quite a lot of backing as well. You should um, you should check out the, um, the YouTube videos around um, when there's a new release and sort of check out the uh, the production values involved in that. So, yeah, no expense spared, I don't think. Probably, yeah, I'll send you the links later. Um, we'll pop some in the description for sure. But it's, yeah, quite surprising. <laughs> it's not what you'd there's expect. Lots of, lots of data geeks out there, is that what you're saying? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. <laughs> Glad to hear it. Excellent. Well, I think we've done a fair job there of covering uh, what, what Kafka is and how it can be applied and Kafka streams and linking of the, the topics, which I quite like, because sometimes when we're using terminologies like topics, we're kind of using them in a loose way. But actually, when we're talking about applications, we're often talking about a very specific thing. And um, yeah, linking of the topics through a Kafka stream is a valid thing. Yeah, it's Perfectly normal sentence. <laughs> I like it a lot. <laughs> All righty. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Neil. And uh, yeah, I'm sure we'll have you back again soon to explain something else I have no idea about. <laughs> right. You're welcome. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. It is. That's it for another episode of the Atlas Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, I'll leave you all with a quote from Tim Berners-Lee, the inventor of the World Wide Web. He says, data is a precious thing and will last longer than the systems themselves. See you next week. If you have any thoughts on the Atlas podcast, please don't forget to leave us a review. If you'd like to get in touch, you can email us at podcast at weareatlas.com. Follow us on Twitter at ATS underscore Atlas, and you can like our LinkedIn page found in the episode description. If you want to know more about Atlas products, services, and projects, head over to our website, weareatlas.com, to find out 